Welcome to the New Books Network. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Books and Biography, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Mark Clobus, and today I'm speaking with Michael Brewers, author of the book Napoleon, The Decline and Fall of an Empire, 1811 to 1821. Michael, welcome back to the New Books Network. Well, thanks very much, Mark. Thanks for inviting me back. Well, thanks for agreeing to be on the show. No problem. I was wondering for some of our listeners who may not have heard uh, the the previous podcast that we've done, if you could tell them something about yourself. Uh, well, I'm a professor emeritus now. Sadly, I uh, retired from my uh, job at Oxford, my chair at Oxford uh, last year. I was professor of um, Western European history there for 19 years. Um, before that, um, I taught at a couple of universities uh, in the UK and in, in the United States. And um, yeah, I mean, that's about, I happen to have been born um, in the United States, actually, in Connecticut, but uh, I'm Irish. I was largely brought up in Ireland, and um, I'm an Oxford person, really. I suppose that's about yeah, It sounds like quite, quite, quite good. Sorry, go ahead. Well, I was my supervisor, so I'm, I'm very proud of that association. So what led you to undertake a, a multi-volume biography of Napoleon Bonaparte, because it's such a, a daunting task on so many levels. What, what, what led you to embrace the challenge? Um, two things, really, because I was in the middle of another project, which I hope I'm going to get back to um, in the next year or so. But um, first of all, I was approached. Um, you know, we were having a lot of anniversaries, bicentenaries and things. There was a, a flood of lives of Napoleon and um, the two publishers involved in this one um, wanted their own um, and I was approached by them the hook though that made me decide to do it um, was the production by the Fondation Napoleon in Paris uh, Thierry Lance's team of this incredible new correspondence general of Napoleon you know his, his, his correspondence was first brought out by his nephew Napoleon III, um, you know, in the 1850s and 60s, and is something that sort of was there and wasn't there. It wasn't really satisfactory for a professional historian. You know, uh, the nephew editing the uncle's um, stuff wasn't the best recipe for objectivity. Uh, they didn't have the research tools in those days that we have now. Uh, Thierry Lawrence and the Fondation were producing this marvelous thing that's almost four times now. Um, as as large as the original three and a half. And um, that was, I was going to be the first in the field with that if I took this on. So I jumped at it. It was going to be, it was going to be possibly not different, possibly different. It was certainly going to be better informed than anybody else. Because, but, but yes. I, I was going to say, one of the things that, that, that really fascinated me was, I mean, given the, the, the scope of that project and the sheer amount of information that there's available on Napoleon, how you were able to really, you know, for, for lack of a better word, tame it all, because there's just so much out there available about him. And the correspondence just to add to that. And yet it, 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 your, your volume can really bog down in details. So you, 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 you're always able to kind of keep a, uh, a, a pace going and, 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 and you don't you know, lose the, the forest for the trees, so to speak. Well, that's kind of you to say, um, and I'm glad you think that some readers do. Some readers do think I get lost. <laughs> it's rather hard not to because there's an awful lot there. Um, I developed a way of working the correspondence 
um, which may or may not be satisfactory. But I felt this was the, the best way to try to handle it. Um, in that, you, on the one hand, you, you, you trace his correspondence with a person over certain periods. On the other, you focus on a certain period. You know, you, you focus on a certain number of days, weeks, whatever, and just read everything. Um, and then, as I say, there are people you trace. Having said that, I'll throw it in the caveat. It's one of these things. It's like walking around the open shelves of a great library and you always read the book that was beside the one you went to borrow. <laughs> like that. You know, you're reading what you're supposed to read. And then you look over and think, hey, that's interesting. I didn't know that. <laughs> it bought it. Um, so, you know, it, 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 there's, there's all that going on. And that is helped. Again, I have to go back to by the incredible, assiduous um, you know, research aid that, that Lotz has provided, his superb index to the letters, to the people, you can trace that really well. When it's chronological, you really have to take that on yourself and decide this is the crisis point, these are the dates that matter. I'm going in there. But the, this, this New version of the correspondence is really the researcher's friend, you know, and it's 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 never going to be exhausted. It's never going to be definitive, because there is simply so much of value in there, and it's something that we'll all have to use from now on. But I was very fortunate and very grateful to be the first person in there who could write an entire biography that could refer to it, because my great friend and rival Philip Dwyer, of course, he went into the field with the three volume. Life of Napoleon, it's very different from mine. We're very different historians. But the volume one came out, and a lot of his volume two, before the stuff was, was published. And indeed, I felt towards the end of the, the project, I felt a bit like like um, the script writers for Game of Thrones, desperately <laughs> Martin to produce the goods, and he wasn't. And I just about made it. You know, I sort of... Um, it was kind of in a race for the couple of volumes. <laughs> or I do it. I was sort of, you know, on the phone of a thousand of volumes. You know, couldn't you just sneak me the rushes? You know, could I just see? No. But, you know, but here's, here's a free copy anyway. You know, we sent the free copy by, you know, by FedEx. You know, so I, I, did, I did have it all in the end. Oh, wow. That's fantastic. It's good, it's good to know that that's, that's how you can get free copies of expensive books. A couple of, a couple of them, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> They were terrific. They're terrific people. And I think the whole world of the Polyonic Scholarship owes them a massive debt. And if there's anything that sets that book apart, my books apart, I think it's that. And it's great to see so many people using it. It's great to see it being put online. You know, um, they've got a few volumes of it online now. It's going to all be online at some point in the future. You know, it's tremendous. It's absolutely tremendous. But I'm retired now. But I envy future research students, and I envy their supervisors even more. And all of the correspondence is online. You know, well, just open up your computer and click. You know, I couldn't do that with my folks. You know, it's tremendous. But that's what that's what spurred me to do it, because um, I never really saw myself as a biographer. But until then, of course, that didn't. The first volume didn't come out until I was sixty. And my work had been very different, but uh, that's shown me a whole new path. And I think the next the next book might be about another biography. I don't know. Oh, really? 
Uh, let's turn to the the book itself and 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 uh, where you open because you, you begin in in eighteen eleven and you provide us with uh, an uh, like a, a picture of of Napoleon at that point in his life and also you give us a overview of his empire. I was wondering if you could perhaps explain what you know where Napoleon was at that point in his life and uh, what it was that he was in charge of. And, and the and the challenges he was facing at at, at that point uh, in in his uh, in his career. Yeah, well, when I started to write that, when I cho- in fact when I chose the dates I did, um, I was very influenced by Edward Gibbon as to kind of all of Roman Empire, which I read when I was a, a schoolboy. I started to read it, and uh, my classics master, my Latin master, always used to say that I was bitten by Gibbon in the Prussian age. And you know, the thing is. That's where it came from. It came quite naturally to me, but it does take some explaining. I started when, on the face of it, yeah, on the face of it, Napoleon is at his peak. He's got everything going for him. Um, he's got over the trauma of divorcing Josephine. He's remarried Mary Louise. He's finally, you know, now has the much wished for, prayed for heir legitimate heir. He's got a son, uh, you know, he's got the foot to look forward to. And his empire, if you look at it on paper, is at its height. Um, France, the, the parts of Europe that were annexed directly to France and governed from Paris as parts of France, numbered over 120 departments. Hamburg was a French town. Bremen was a French town. Roman Rome was a French town. You know, this is unbelievable when you think about it. All these places, Munster was a French town. Plus the satellite kingdoms under his siblings, some of which, like Holland, have been abolished and absorbed into the empire. Some of which, like Naples, Westphalia in Germany, Spain, are still there, just about. And he is, on paper at least, allies with Prussia and Austria. He's forced them into an alliance. If you look at this and you gulp, and indeed, if you were, well, Alexander the first, uh, the Russian Tsar, the British government, um, the Austrians, the Prussians, they all gulped. That's why the Prussians and the Austrians went along with them and became his allies, because they just didn't see how the guy could be beaten. You know, he looks like this is it. And yet, you know, three years later, it's gone. And so inevitably, if you're an historian trained in a certain way like me, you start to probe for the weaknesses if you if you take it in Gibbon um, at a very early impressionable stage when I was a teenager you start to look under this at the weaknesses Gibbon starts off with the kind of fall of Roman Empire with Augustus Rome's Silver Age you know I, I remember picking it up when I was a teenager when I was about 15 and thinking wait a minute I've, I'm reading the wrong book here you know I, I, there, we're, there's no barbarian invasions for another three volumes or something what's going on yeah, you know, it's a bit like that. I mean, um, you look at the size of the empire, it looks impregnable. But when you look at it in many ways, it's actually a confession of weakness. He's trying to defeat the British through economic warfare and blockade. The only way he can do it is to annex the whole of the North Sea coast of France, to annex most of northwestern Italy to France, to put his brother in charge of Spain because Spain won't force the blockade or can't, to try and force the Russian Tsar into a, an assault help him with the blockade again. It's, all of that is fraying very badly. He has to do that because he's frustrated. He just can't wait. He just he just 
cannot break the British through economic warfare. He looks like he might in 1811-12. He looks like he might, you know, but underneath, it fails. It's, and he's got in, himself into what imperialist historians now call the overstretch, imperial overstretch. He can't control this. He can't handle it. His relationship with Russia is very tense and going to collapse because he's extended to Poland and created the Duchy of Warsaw, which creates intractable tensions between them. The Russians cannot go into the blockade. They depend on British trade too much for their raw materials. He's got a war in Spain that he is actually winning. Not a lot of people want to admit that, but he, especially in this country. But he is actually doing better in Spain than you could ever dream of in 1811. But he cannot drive the British out. He can contain them. All of this is going on. The sun, having the sun, Napoleon, Napoleon Charles, uh, Napoleon Francis looks, you know, this is what he's been afraid of for so long. That it's all very Roman. You know, when he dies, the empire will pull apart. It's like Alexander the Great, nowhere. The generals will pull out among themselves. He says, now the heir should solve that, except for something that, again, I felt I had to emphasize. He also knows he's an ill man. And that little boy is barely out of, you know, he, he's only born in 1811, and Napoleon has to think to himself, I haven't got long left. And he didn't. He only had 10 more years to live. It's going to be a long regency. And regencies are bad news, especially in France. They are bad, bad news. You know, things have to be settled. He has to be as secure on that throne as I can make him. And this leads him into all sorts of problems. So, you know, all the glitters, it's not gold. One of the things that I, I was taking from your, your description of those years, it, it, it's... Uh, it, and this this goes to what you were just saying about his, his uh, you know longevity. It, I mean, it, it's it, it's really the sense of him as a middle aged man trying to still be the man he was in his youth, and, and you see that with with the the invasion of Russia that that he launches in eighteen twelve, which is that he he wants to or take this grand campaign. It, it, it struck me as I was reading about how it, it seems like it, it, it was the, the the tool in his toolkit that he was most comfortable with using. And, and, and he, but he also recognizes that he can't, you know, he's not the man of 1796 or 1805 anymore. He, you describe a couple of points, how he has to get off the horse and get in the carriage because he doesn't have that stamina that, 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 that he uh, had in his youth. And, and, and so it, there is that sense that, that, you know, uh, that I didn't really fully appreciate till I read the book of the urgency in terms of defeating Russia, that he couldn't afford to negotiate. He really had to, to break Russia and that he was trying the only way that he knew how, which was on the battlefield, destroying the army and therefore forcing Alexander to uh, submit. Yeah, I, I think digging deep uh, into the correspondence and also into um, you know reliable, other reliable sources, reliable memoirs. The two people he really confides in here are Cambesfras, who's always his number two. Um, his de facto regent when he's away, the guy who framed the the, the simple code, the code of Napoleon. I mean, this is the guy he trusts with his life. And um, Colin Cour, who's his foreign minister for a time, was what is the minister? His uh, ambassador to St. Petersburg just before the Russian conflict began. And from several sources you draw together, you know, he knows he's ill. Um, as you say, he's he's not the man of 1805. He knows that. He's known it really from about 1809 um, when he was desperately ill. Um, the background campaign against Austria. 
and actually says to Josephine, who's still married to at the time, you know, you've heard I've not been well, probably, through the rumor mill. Well, the rumor mill was right, but I'm okay now. He never, ever says to her or to his mother, I've been ill. You know, he'll say to his brother Joseph, I've been ill. Now, look, don't tell mom. Don't tell. <laughs> you know, um, but uh, he, he says to them in 1811, because Cambesper says to him, look, you know, this is not a good idea. Napoleon can always listen to criticism. You know, he's not hes not an unreasonable person. He's, he's not hysterical or anything. Not megalomaniac. You, you, this is not a good idea, boss. Everybody calls him boss. Everybody calls him chef. It is a good idea. You're, a lo- you're going to be a long, long way from Paris. Long, long way from here. This is not a good idea. I mean, I'll hold the fort as best I can, but this is not a good idea. You, you know what happens to people when they invade Russia. Charles XII this week, he invaded Russia. Look what happened to him. He lost everything. It's not a good idea, pal. You've never done anything like this. Colleague says the same. You know, look, they're more organized than you, than you, not than you think. You know they're organized, but you don't know how they're organized. But I'm telling you, you're going to have trouble. This is not like any campaign you thought. Napoleon doesn't throw them out of the room and shout at them and talk about, you know, start calling them defeatists or whatever. He says to them quite calmly, I know all that, but look, A, I'm ill. B, the boy is very young. We've got to have as peaceful a regency as we can. Alexander, for a whole number of reasons, can no longer be trusted and regarded as a friend. He was out. He was more right about that than he knew. Alexander wanted to invade Poland and Germany early in 1811, and his military convinced him that it wasn't on because the Poles would not cooperate. They were pro-Napoleon. And he's the only one with an army left in Europe that is capable of defeating us, and so he's got to be taken on and sorted out. He's, he's, if we do that, if we manage to defeat that army in one big battle, which is always how he works, there's nothing new about that, then things shall be settled at least long enough for my son to come of their age and I've got to do it literally this is what he says I've got to do it while I can still get in the saddle that's one of those ringing phrases I have ever read while I can still get in the saddle yep he knows and that's what's pushing him you know that I think is the main driving force it's why I have to do it now it's why I can't prevaricate what he doesn't know is how ready to strike Alexander was and was you know, just thwarted by by other circumstances. Alexander was going to start a hostile war, an offensive war. He he didn't. He started preparing for a defensive one pretty quickly. Switched to to offense to defense remarkably quickly. But uh, but that's why he feels he has to do it. You know, he can't see another way out because of his own circumstances. Uh, it it really would. You, I'm glad I only took this all when I myself was older. And because I'm not that I was 10 years ago, <laughs> you know, time is short. I can appreciate that better now than I would have if I'd started writing with. I began it when I was, you know, in my mid-50s. And I was writing that when I was in my mid-60s. And I'm glad because if I'd started it 20 years ago, I wouldn't have appreciated that as much as I do now. So, but, but of course, the, the, the problem is that it, while Alexander has the army, he also is smart enough not to accommodate. Uh, Napoleon and Alexander really emerges in your book as as the as the person who more than any other single one, uh, you know, brings about Napoleon's defeat uh, during this three year period. That that he, you know, he he 
he's not going to play Napoleon's game. He draws Russia in. And you make it clear that, I mean, the campaign's falling apart long before you get to Moscow and the winter. It's, it's, it goes wrong from the, from the, from the snap. Oh, it does. Um, I mean, most of the horses, Napoleon himself came back and immediately created the myth that he had to for his own credibility. It was the winter that killed us, boys. The weather defeated me. You know, it, it, it was. It was it was bad planning and bad timing. You know, he always puts his hand up and says, you know, okay, it was bad planning and bad timing and all that. It was the retreat that did for me the winter. It was an early winter, but maybe I should have gone out earlier. Okay, I'm guilty of that, but that's what did for me, and you can't control the weather. <laughs> you know, um, in fact, no. It didn't help. Most of the horses, for example, die on the way in because it goes in, in a sense, too early. He doesn't. He can't carry enough fodder for his cavalry. And what are they doing? They're eating raw, fresh, green grass that gives them stomach ulcers, and they all kill or and die. It's horrendous if you're an animal lover. They're de- they're dead before he gets to Moscow. They're dead before he fights Borodino. Most of them, and of course, they can never be replaced. He goes in with the most magnificent cavalry in the world. It comes out with nothing. Whereas Alexander is building cavalry behind him all the time. Um, you know that the whole thing falls apart. It, I mean, this is gruesomely familiar when you think about what's going on in the Ukraine. Um, it was it was eerie watching that, considering I just finished that chapter. That um, the mud that gets stuck in the mud. The he brings in it's it's all about bigness eighteen twelve. It's shock and all these huge wagons pulled by by teams and teams of oxen that can carry all this gear. You know all the logistics the army needs, all the supplies pulling the big guns, whatever. And the Russian roads are so primitive, unpaved, that they just can't carry the weight. You know, it's all falling apart. Troops lagging behind, getting ill, um, loss of men on the march, even more so than in battle. There's the first big battle is well into the campaign and someone else. And, and, you know, the big losses have already been incurred. Obviously, the last stages of the retreat in the depths of winter are horrendous. And the suffering was horrendous for both armies. But the losses were not as big as the going in, as the advance. Um, so, yeah, it's, a, it's all fallen apart from the beginning. It, it really, really is. Um, I was going to add that one of the things you do in the book that I really like was, was how you subtly call back to that when you're describing the war of the sixth coalition the war that 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 is launched in the aftermath of of, of napoleon's uh failure when you talk about how he goes back into battle against uh the russians and the prussians and he wins but he no longer has the ability to turn those victories into triumphs how he no longer has the cavalry to completely cut off his enemy and 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 uh and and uh, totally de- demolish their armies and and so he's feeling that loss that 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 the that army that once sacrificed in russia he can't get back no matter how hard he tries you describe <laughs> that the efforts that he tried that the undertakes to do so are, are, are formidable well they are i mean they're, they're, they're trying to rebuild the cavalry in the end proves impossible and it's also laughable you know, because he sends out these desperate appeals i mean it is more or less these things you're like you got in in russia in, in the soviet union in world war ii you know each factory adopt a tank it's your tank you know contribute to it pay for it and your factory 
you know, your unit can have a tank. And it's a bit like that. You know, every department contributes so many horses. You know, um, every, uh, what do they do? I mean, sometimes they'll cough up the money. Sometimes, all right, we'll contribute horses. And what do you get? You get job on the court horse. You know, you get some suede back thing. You, you, you get my little pony. You know, <laughs> well, I gave my daughter's pony, you know, um, because that's the only horse I have. You know, anything, it, and you see the geography in it within the empire, particularly within France, the departments that are still within the parts of France that are still within the departments of the internal administrative units of France are still within. They do their best. The departments that are largely lukewarm about him or even really opposed to him at heart do next to nothing, but he cannot scrape horses together. His only real trump card there is he pulls cavalry units out of Spain. The army in Spain becomes his treasury trope. Now that's weakening the Spanish front, but it is you know it, um, it is a tr it, that is where he gets what hope he has because he does he says you were saying I mean in the, in the Saxon campaign the first major battles of Dresden he wins it he wins two other engagements smaller ones about Slavutsen. He cannot follow any of those up because there's no cavalry to pursue. And you know, the Allies at first are very discouraged. I mean, those are largely fought by the Prussians with a bit of Russian backup. And they're getting pretty discouraged. You know, they've been beaten in the field, but then like, well, where is he? Well, he's not coming. Why? Because he hasn't get, got any horses. You know, and Alexander is sitting there thinking, that's all right, fellas, I've got plenty of horses. You know, I've got the step ponies, who are the old world's equivalent of the American Mustang. You know, I'll just go and rouse some more. I'll just go rouse some up. You know, send the Cossacks out and tell them to round up some more step ponies for me. And, you know, everybody knows how to ride out there. We all know how to ride. Come on. And he can raise cavalry units out of nothing. But in his desperation, even, look, think about it. He's won at Dresden, and it's a heroic victory. It's largely a French army that fights Dresden, unlike Russia, which was called the Army of the 22 Nations, which was composite from all over Europe, all over his empire. Dresden is by and large a French army, mixture of hardened veterans and a large number of raw recruits who fight very well. And you take great art from that, but you can't follow it up. The exhaustion that, that, uh, that France is feeling about those campaigns is so evident when he's going into exile. You describe how he's, he's, going to, he's being transported to Elba and and he he has these these French subjects as people who are just furious with him about it. You get the impression that he really that that they were done with him, and and yet he goes to Elba and he comes back. And it, it, I mean nowadays I I was thinking about all of the previous accounts I've read, which make it seem like you know they they loved him, they missed him, and and, and you make it clear that they're the. Most of a lot of France was much more ambivalent about uh, Napoleon, and and, and uh, by that point, not so much and his return than sometimes Napoleon himself, of course, would care to admit. I think ambivalence the word, Mark, um, and I think that was. I really do think that was something that needed to be said pretty emphatically. Um, when he comes back, you got to remember a whole history of this. And it doesn't just start with Napoleon taking power in seventeen ninety nine. This goes right back to the French Revolution. You know, the, the lived experience is 10 years of revolution followed by Napoleon and how many years of war. And when he reappears, although people 
are fed up with them. They want rid of them. As you say, they want done with them. There is also this sense that runs very deep in French society. Hedge your bets. We don't know what's going to happen. You know, we, we, we might want rid of them, but we might be stuck with them again. Who's to say what could happen? Who knows what can happen? Everything that, that can happen has happened. It could happen again. It's the only way I can explain it. That we, right, so they sit tight. Okay, we, we, we support whoever is in Paris. We wait for the word to come and we say, yes, we're with you. Because who knows? Um, there are certain parts of French society that are absolutely against Napoleon, and it shows um, over most of the South and the West. They oppose the revolution. They've always opposed Napoleon. Um, they've been suppressed, but they've, they've, they've never uh, been won over. Um, they take to the field against him. That's part of the reason, if you even look at the way he marches to Paris, but the first stage of it, when he's going through the South, when he's going through Provence and places like that, I mean, I, I've driven that road. <laughs> I was, I, I hate to say, but I was much, much younger. My wife and I drove that road. I drove that road many years ago. And you're practically on the goat's paths if you follow the line, you know, if you, if you follow the route of the march, you're right up the nails on these hairpin bends. You know, I mean, I, I needed to stiff Napoleon Brandy after a couple of days of that. <laughs> it, honestly, it was scary. Um, and he, what is he doing? He's keeping out of the way because that part of France is deeply hostile to it. He's, he, he knows he could be stopped. And he, he, he's more, it's not a triumphal march. It's evasive. When he gets further north into the big garrison towns, the places like Burgundy and the Champagne that have always supported the revolution, always supported him because they see him as the revolution. He's fine. He's out in the open. He's going to do it. Um, and that's part of the reason when he gets that far, why the Bourbons collapse, why they run, because they don't know what's going to happen. They've been overthrown once before. They'll be overthrown again. You know, better to scamper to safety in Belgium and regroup, you know, with the British and the Prussians around them to fight another day because the lived experience is one is complete uncertainty. But when Napoleon gets to Paris and takes over, he's not sitting on top of a country that loves him. It's a country that divides between those who hate him, the large but the large silent majority who are staying silent, just gonna sit it out, and his support, which largely comes from inside the establishment, from the army, large swathes of the army from the civil service, from those parts of France, those regions of France that were always pro-revolutionary and did not like the Bourbons. They might have been prepared to accept them in 1814, but having had them back, they immediately become suspicious. And they'll support Napoleon because he has the wit in 1815 to win them over by saying, I'm returning to the values of the revolution. By doing that, he writes off a huge part of France and he undoes his own cherished policy, which he's taken on from the beginning. Uh, the, the, the French were to the best, rival and amalgam, amalgamation and rallying, trying to win people from all sides and stripes of opinion over to him, or at least convince them to accept it. You know, and, and he betrays that in 1815. He has to, but he does. We so Oh, sorry, go ahead. It's a, it's a very tense time. Oh, you appreciate the time you've taken to speak with us, but before we go, could you tell us what you're working on now? Um, well, at the moment, I'm taking a bit of a breather, but <laughs> just retired. Um, I'm desperately trying to write an article and a couple of conference papers. <laughs> uh, that's what I'm doing right now. I'm pretty desperate because the deadline's in, a, in a, about seven weeks. But um, I've been approached uh, 
about possibly writing a life of Murat, which I think would be Napoleon's cavalry commander, which I think would be fun. He's a colorful guy. I have a long-term project I've got to get back to called the Napoleonic Civilization, which is about the kind of ideology and, and actually downright ethnic prejudices that underpin a lot of the empire. Yeah. Been, I, broke, I broke off doing that to write the biography. But Murat was an idea that was put to me over a good lunch um, by some published by a publisher and an agent, and uh, it sounds like fun. So maybe that. Well, that those both sound like fantastic projects. I, I, I wish you the best of luck with them. Michael, thank you very much for taking some time out of your schedule to speak with us. I hope you have a wonderful day. Thank you, and you too. Thank you very much, Mark. It's been a pleasure.